Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from Michael's vague memories of watching Game of Thrones, the TV show, a decade ago. Today, we're discussing our background and the prologue of A Game of Thrones. Enjoy. All right. Hey, man. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Good. I'm excited. Excited to talk about, uh, I think, this this rather unknown book series that uh, I'm glad you uh, suggested for us to start start having a conversation around. Yeah, you know, I figured we should be the first to get into this field uh, ahead of anybody else, you know. Just really gonna, we're going to introduce this book series to the world. Um, Dan, this is... Um, yeah, Michael, you can't see there me. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is our first our first podcast together. Yeah, so uh, we are a couple of brothers um, that are looking to for an excuse to make Michael talk to me while he reads Game of Thrones for the first time, uh, and have a few drinks while we do so. And that is what I'm looking forward to. Um, so, just going to start off here with why we've decided to do this. Why now, in particular, when uh, I think maybe the hype surrounding the Game of Thrones book series has died down a little bit. Uh, although, let's be honest, I don't think we're getting famous off this anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I, since this recent progress towards getting here started with you, why don't you take it away? What What have you been reading lately that brought well, it, us to it, this point? It's so funny because, uh, like, uh... You know, you're saying that the fandom's gone down, so why now? But I think that that is why now, because I refuse to participate in anything that happens to be like the thing of the time. Uh, and yeah. so that's that's what my experience was, right? So with Game of Thrones, I knew it through the TV series. I saw the first two and a half seasons, and I was like, this is too fancy. Like, there are too many people. It's too cool. People are too into it right now. And I know you were really into it at the time, and I think we even watched some episodes together. And I know you read the whole series like like a lot, but uh, but I steered away from it at that time. And then the the other thing with this is that while I love, I, I have a real penchant for reading, and, and I love to read a lot. I I just never really invested in in the fantasy genre by any means. But very randomly, um, maybe three or four months ago somebody gave me a Brandon Sanderson book uh, and, and it was what book I think it was the, the way of Kings. You know, what's funny is I don't actually know it, it's part of the, I'm going to get all the words wrong, uh, which this will be a Love recurring it. theme as we yeah, talk. No, but, this is uh, the theme. I think it's, it's the first book in the sword killer chronicles, which is part one of the, like the sword King, something, something. Uh, but it was amazing. And I, I kind of burned through it in, in a really fast rate. I had a really fun time just getting into that world and, and all of this, and, and I'll say like as a contrast that, uh, you know, I'm reading at the same time, just, just to give like a little bit of context, uh, reading like like a book by Jersey Kaczynski called The Hermit of 69th Street, like some rather heavier, headier literature. But I was so excited to not read that while I just really invested in this, uh, in this. Is that, your, uh, is, that your, is that your usual style, the heavier stuff? Like what, if you had to pick a favorite book of all time, what would you go with? <laughs> I, I hate this question because I have I have answers and it just, just I feel like it makes me sound like a huge tool bag. Uh, you know, my, my, that was my goal. Yeah, I, I get that. Uh, I'm a huge postmodern fan. I've infinite jest. I've read twice now. 
Gravity's Rainbow okay. by Thomas Pynchon is up there. I, Kurt Vonnegut books, like like I, I'm a huge fan there as well, as well as like old classics, Thomas Mann and, and The Magic Mountain. And and I mean, just really like, like there was a long time early in my life where I thought that like the top 100 books of all time was like a mandatory reading list uh, for people by the time that they got to be 25. And so I read a real chunk of those and, and really loved it, uh, like, like, like leading to this. But I also have a fun time. Like I have always really loved science fiction and, you know, older, you know, Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke type stuff and the foundation series and Dune, Frank Herbert's Dune and all of this and Ray Bradbury, but it was really fantasy that stayed outside of my sort of jurisdiction of what I'd kind of go towards. Uh, Probably because I liked it, frankly. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you were so much better than me in so many fields. And I was like, I don't want to go head to head on fantasy with Daniel, but but I'm excited yeah. to have you here as my like guide on this journey. Yeah. <laughs> so this is, I, I think, uh, exactly the point. You know, for me, uh, fantasy has always been a part of my reading. I definitely spent a few years, I think, between my late adolescence and teenage years and uh, the more recent last couple of years trying to read more seriously, uh, taking some of that inspiration from you, but definitely getting sidetracked. And it really made me read a lot less. And I've gotten back into the fantasy world more lately, um, but this has been a, a world that I really enjoy. So I also have some of that, uh, certainly not nearly as much as you, but some of that experience with more serious literature. Uh, and then beyond that, I've just been reading fantasy since I was a kid, again, with that break in the middle. Uh, also thoroughly enjoyed science fiction, um, but have tried to read, you know, the the pantheon books and I think I'm still making my way through that now that I've kind of rediscovered it as an adult uh and so that's my focus here and what I bring to this which I think is the perfect indication for the inspiration for this which is that I read a series when I was uh, a kid that you probably remember me flipping through and I think the books are still lying around mom and dad's house somewhere uh called the wheel of time and similar to game of thrones that is a series with these giant tomes of books uh, unlike Game of Thrones, the series is actually finished. There are 15 of them. Several of them were written actually by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, but I, since the TV show on that came out a year ago, kind of decided I wanted to dive back into it. And I'm still making my way through that series for the first time in years. Um, but coming out of my experience with the Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones fandom and the culture surrounding that, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment, how I relate to that. But I went and found a podcast that would really help me uh, unpack things as I read them and pick up on the details that maybe I was missing. And that, that podcast, the one I settled on and ended up listening to very regularly, is called The Wheel Weaves, uh, which is hosted by a couple named Danny and Brett, who do a fantastic job. But the entire structure of that is Brett had read the Wheel of Time series uh, from what sounds like to me, you know, maybe too many times. Uh, he'd probably say the same thing. And had been telling his wife, Danny, for years now that she should read it. And she finally agreed to. So she is jumping in completely cold, knowing nothing. And they record these episodes as they go through each chapter, one at a time or two at a time. And I was thinking that it would be fun to do something similar like that with Game of Thrones, which uh, I have read also too many times and have been engaging with a lot of the great writing and podcasts that are out there on that. And so I will be stealing a lot of what it is they talk about. But I really like the idea of Michael coming into this cold, uh, well, not totally cold, but you know, at least mostly, uh, which again, we'll get to in a moment, 
and uh, really experiencing this story for the first time and trying to figure out where it's heading and then also bringing a lot of that background from art and literature and history and knowledge that you have to bear on, on what is a pretty dense, pretty complex series and just going through things uh, a little bit at a time. And then I will be here to be helpful, you know, both to provide my thoughts on this series, of which I have a lot, but also to give uh, backgrounds that you probably wouldn't have until later. There's a lot of world building in this series. You know, there's a lot of named characters as is normal in fantasy, which can be a barrier to entry and, and a lot of history. It's a very lived in world that I'm hoping I will give you as you go, as opposed to waiting until it's revealed through the story and that that'll help put things in context a little better, keep things streamlined and help give you a sense and an idea of where things are heading before they go and kind of see what it is you take from that and, and what expectations you have. I think it'll be interesting to, even as we're talking about our different, uh, you know, histories of, of the genres that we, we read now and, and, and the sort of like depth of, re of reading that we, we both like to bring to what it is that we're looking at, you know, it'll be interesting too to, I'm excited to hear your knowledge of this world. <laughs> and kind of get that that going on too because it's uh lord knows this, this is a very well-known book series obviously the tv show is is super huge i'm mm -hmm. sure there's tons of wiki type fandom out there as well with lots of information um absolutely and i'm personally in just in general in the books that i read i'm a big fan of being just a first-time reader right like here's my experience mm -hmm. with this thing and i really just want to take it at the value that i'm coming into it with you know kind of receiving from it first touch but for these books and all the history and all the knowledge around them, I'm really excited to have somebody to hopefully give me some perspective on some things uh, early, early on. So, so I'm, I'm looking, looking yeah. forward to that. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what, what they say on the other podcast that I referenced on the wheel weaves, the host often says that his goal is to make it feel closer to a reread for a first time reader so that you can pick up on the things, you know, he's not trying to draw the connections. Uh, for anybody, but to help draw attention to the stuff that might become important later. And if I focus your attention on that, see what you maybe take from it. Um, so I think that's a good time to talk about what it will be I'm drawing on, kind of cite my sources a little bit, um, yeah. especially to start with. I expect that I'm going to be stealing a lot of other people's original content rather than making my own. Uh, but my experience <laughs> with this series, uh, I, I started out with the show similar to what it is you're talking about. And uh, I watched the first two seasons and there's a moment that, you know, when we get to this point in the second book in eight years, uh, I'll point out, but there was a moment in the second season where an episode ended on a cliffhanger. And I was like, there's no way that's what happened. I went and looked up what was going to come next and then realized that if I was going to do that, I should, I should just read the books. Like right. why, why read the wiki <laughs> article instead? Uh, and so I went out and got the books then, and I read through them at that point, uh, Dance with Dragons had just, the fifth book had just come out. Uh, so this is, you know, probably about 10 years ago now, and we are still waiting on the sixth book. Uh, but I, you know, I've reread the books um, at least once since then. I think this will probably be my third full time through, uh, but started kind of making my way through the internet spaces surrounding this. I also, to be clear, watched the rest of the show, which I had mixed feelings on as it continued. Um, but, uh, you know, really made my way through the fandom materials. I've never really been an active participant in it before this, but have, have read a lot and, you know, from the, the subreddit, uh, or various subreddits on it. Um, especially when I was first reading the books, I was very into Reddit, stopped using it very much since then. Uh, and then I've, I've kind of found a couple of podcasts that I've really enjoyed that have linked me to, to people's writing, 
outside of things. The first one was actually a show-focused podcast called Binge Mode that The Ringer did. It was Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin. They did an episode by episode. And uh, it's such a, it was a really delightful show and really, you know, gave some background from the books to help inform what was going on in the show, but wasn't book focused. And then the central thing that I've really listened to, uh, I don't know where they were when I started, but I caught up over the course of a couple of months and then have been listening to it as they keep putting things out, is the Nauticast podcast. Uh, since I know you don't know this reference. George R. R. Martin has a blog that he posts on regularly called his Not a Blog. So that's why they named the podcast that. Uh, and that was a couple of guys, uh, Emmett and Jeff, who were just kind of around fandom on Twitter. Uh, Jeff, I think, was a moderator of the subreddit. And so they were doing a deep dive, spoilers for everything. So you need to have, have consumed all the content before starting to listen to it. But really just going, coming at it from a you know, a, an English major's perspective and linking through the themes and, and really getting deep on stuff that I had not totally picked up on. Uh, and that's when I started rereading the books most recently. Um, and they've been great. Uh, a couple of other things to, to shout out. History of Westeros, Girls Gone Canton is also a great one. There are just so many great uh, works done surrounding this. And then the other one that I want to try and, and draw from in here, because I don't think it's been referenced in the podcast, but a guy named Stephen Atwell uh, has been writing for years now. He's a history professor, and he's talking a lot about the historical pieces uh, and events that George R. R. Martin is pulling from in terms of, of writing this and what things he might be referring to. And so I've always loved going through that, and I'm going to try and take a peek at what he says about each chapter to see if there's anything I want to bring up and point out in terms of what those historical uh, uh, reference points are as we go through the books, because I, well, I find those I'm a lot of fun as well. Through all of that, because I would never. <laughs> yeah, all you never have to do look is at read. any of that. All you have to do is read, uh, make it easier. But I, I think these things help make the world feel lived in and feel fun and, and connect it through to things here. Um, now, you mentioned that you had watched probably the first two, two and a half, maybe even three seasons of the show. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that this is an important point because I want to lay down a baseline here. I'm not going to interfere at all. I might have some follow-up questions, but I want to hear what it is you remember. Again, this is probably all 10 years ago. Uh, don't worry about getting things wrong. This right. is all just helpful. Here's what you think is going to happen based on your experience from then. Uh, you can go in any order you want. I can try yeah. and prompt you a little bit with timing on stuff if that'll help, but this will help me understand and help listeners understand what it is you're thinking about and what future events you already know or think you know are coming yeah. down the pipe. Yeah, no, and that, that's great. Uh, so I, I was actually trying to think about it earlier today, and and I think it's important to stress too that like obviously this is this was like a cultural event. So even now, 10 years since the shows have come out, like it's not rare for me to see like, hey, like highlights from season eight of Game of Thrones or whatever, right? Like, right. And so there, there's like a lot of like, like things that are out there that I'm I'm well aware of the direction the story's going. And it's not lost on me, like even the 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 conflict about, you know, fan reaction for the, the end of the series, right? So, so the, right. there's a place here where, where like, like spoilers have already been spoiled in my experience. hundred percent. I get that. Uh, my, my memory of the show, however, is, is, you know, I remember season one as this really contentious time between the, the household of the Starks, uh, you know, up, up in the North and the King, well, technically the King's wife, the, the Queen and 
his son Joffrey. Joffrey took the throne uh, by the end of that season, if I'm remembering correctly, and we had this sort of like that 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 crazy moment of uh, of of Ned Stark like the beheading of of just like 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 wow okay. this is happening. Yeah. Um, you know, from there, really the next key moment that I remember is the Red Wedding. But I want to stress yeah. that I don't remember the context around it. I know that there was some reason that it was, you know, a political move by somebody to have this happen against the Starks. I remember the Stark, you know, the, the Lady Stark or whatever. I don't remember her name, uh, you know, feeling super betrayed or whatever it is. And then that's honestly really it. Now everything past that are YouTube highlights, are, are you know, like those quick like like top yeah. ten lists. I know there are dragons, <laughs> like, but okay. I don't think I ever saw in the show the dragons get bigger than you know a football. I uh, you know I I I know that they right. did. Obviously, I've seen like like the 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 trailers and previews and things, but the, but that really covers it. It was really the the beheading of ned and then the red wedding and and i i, yeah. I in a weird way i have a very strong visual memory of some woman who i think was a witch who was pregnant and then gave birth to a shadow and i was like that's cool and then i was like oh and okay. i'm not watching anymore so so i no context yeah. on that or, or anything about <laughs> it got it all right no those are those are some good highlights and i think that that makes sense that those would be things that stand out to you. Uh, not saying if you got anything about them correct, but uh, you know, that those are those are the big beats. Uh, and yes, there are dragons, comfortable spoiling that, that's fine. Uh, so, okay, so that's cool. So that's a good start. So like I was saying, uh, I'm not gonna be as pure or tight on this. I do wanna give you room to make predictions about what's coming. Um, mm -hmm. I'm really curious to hear what it is you see coming, what it is you get wrong. And I, I, don't, I wanna interfere with that as little as possible, but, I want to give you some background to help ground things and especially ground the, the less plot driven conversations that we're going to have. And so from that perspective, I just wanted to talk about with some of my initial thoughts, kind of framing thoughts about George R. R. Martin and yeah, the yeah, series. Uh, you know, this is all my opinions. I'm sure plenty of this would be controversial, but I think a lot of it comes, uh, it draws heavily on the fandom and on the people who have done this before me. So uh, probably not too new. So just to touch on a few of these before we get going on it. The, the first one I want to talk about is probably something that you've heard before uh, about this series and that I don't totally agree with, but is this concept that George R. R. Martin is essentially engaged in the subversion of fantasy tropes, that he is undermining them or flipping them on their head. And I don't think that's totally right. What we have in this series is somebody who knows backwards and forwards the pantheon of fantasy and the way these things work and the way they're in conversations with themselves and wants to uh, really um, drill in and ask questions of that structure. And so because of that knowledge, he is able to use things in certain ways to create expectations in the readers that, oh, you know, this character is the beautiful, handsome knight in golden armor and he's going to be the savior and it's okay how can we take that image and play with it and use it in a different way and so it's not a subversion of the trope where oh you think this person's going to win and actually they die it's are you interrogating closely enough who the protagonist actually is or are you following falling for those 
symbols and for that kind of surface level painting. And even for a uh, intelligent, close reader who knows that that's what's happening, I think he does such a good job with it and such a strong job of it uh, in terms of playing with what's come before him in the world of fantasy that it's very easy to fall into those areas. Oh, this person is evil because they are perceived as evil. Oh, they're really acting in this certain way uh, because of, of the viewpoint that we're looking at them through. And I find that really fascinating. And I, I also think that it's very helpful in terms of understanding what's going to come next. Not that you'll be 100% successful on it, but understanding, okay, I'm viewing this person as a protagonist because that's the way they're being presented to me. Is that quite right? Is there something else about their motivations, about who they are, about their uh, past, their trauma, their childhood that is going to pull them in a different direction than what it is that I'm expecting? Okay. Uh, and in conjunction with that, you know, this entire book takes place through a viewpoint structure where each chapter is presented to you from a different point of view character. And then you'll return to that point of view character over and over and over again as the person staring at an area. And so one of the things that that causes is how much of what I'm reading and understanding and how much of what I'm thinking about the events that are happening are being colored by the person who, whose eyes uh, I'm watching. Just like a bias. And so that's and something that's going to come up a lot chapters. as well. Yeah. Are they perceiving things correctly? Are they understanding the motivations of those around them? Or am I simply adopting their characterization of those motivations without asking questions about it? Um, there are plenty of times throughout this series where somebody who has been a quote unquote villain up to that point becomes a point of view character and you start to get their internal thought processes and why it is they're acting mm -hmm. the way that they are. They look back on past events where they were so clearly in the wrong and you get a slightly different view of what it was and it kind of fleshes them out as a person. Like who, who are you referring to? Uh, Don't so, tell me. Don't spoil it. God, Daniel. Oh, man. Okay, great catch. Well done. <laughs> See, this is, I got to stay alert to this. I, I, I'm just saying, I'm going to try to wring out of you more than I think you may want to give, so be prepared. <laughs> All right. I'll try and be careful about that. All right. Uh, well done. Well played. <laughs> the next one that I, I wanted to talk about is uh, there is a a conversation that I think I first learned about, I don't know if it came from the creator of The Wire himself, David Simon, or somebody was saying it about the show The Wire, but it's this difference between a, um, a, a story that is plot-driven versus a story that is a sociological story, that it is an analysis of systems, of power structures, of relationships between people and how those people interact with each other. And uh, this story to me very much so is one of the latter types of stories, which is why I feel comfortable diving into something like this when there's all the chance in the world that we will never see how it ends from the author. And, uh, and that would be stuck here because so much of this is about uh, the characters and who the characters are and what their backgrounds are and who they are as people and how they grow. And then putting them into this world that mirrors uh, real world history, but also mirrors a lot of our contemporary contemporaneous society. And how does their interaction with those structures and the levers of power, what does that tell us about the world around us? And so in that sense, I think it's a very explicitly political book. It, to me, seems to have a lot of very intentional uh, viewpoints and very intentional stances that I think are interesting to unpack. Um, unlike a lot of other people who talk about these books, I know very little about the things George R. R. Martin himself has said about them or about his life and things like that, nor am I particularly interested in it. But I think I get a lot 
that I would consider directly from him and the way he thinks about things just through the books themselves and the writing. Uh, and so I, I definitely pay a lot of attention to that. How does, uh, how do people in the society interact with each other and how does their role in the society influence that? And how does uh, individual characters who are maybe rebelling against those roles influence the way these events go forward. Uh, that comes through through class critiques. There's a lot of a gender conversation surrounding it. Um, a lot of these different, you know, buzzword kind of hierarchies that we have is really infused throughout the entirety of this series. Next thing that I would say, and then I'm going to get into a couple of more like plot related specifics, or at least specific contents, is, is one of the other very fun things for me. And one of the reasons I keep returning to this is that it is very much so obviously a fantasy series, but George R. R. Martin as an author seems very capable in lots of different genres. And so it is very infused. There will be set pieces or even entire story, uh, book long stories and narratives that happen that are noir or are horror or are a political drama or are thriller. And you can really see those and see those genre beats and the things that make it that style shine through. And so picking up on those is cool. And uh, I, I did this on purpose, but that's a good segue to the story specific things. One of the, the uh, aspects of this story as a fantasy novel that's really cool is he does, George R. R. Martin does what a lot of mystery writers do, where he's sprinkling clues throughout as to what's coming and doing it in such a way so as to try and escape notice uh, and does that very successful. So a lot of the things that I've listened to or read in the past talk about the threefold revelation that he'll hint at it very quietly once, the next one will be a little louder, and then the third time will be the actual event happening. And so if you can kind of pick up on those patterns, sometimes you can see what's coming before it gets there. Okay. Uh, first time I read things, I had none of that. I, I picked up on none of it. And this was very much so like a comeback on reread and was like, oh shit, he was telegraphing this from the get-go. And that twist that I thought came out of nowhere was actually there the whole time. Um, so that's, that's really where you come in, but that is something to focus in on and to try and pick up these little tidbits where they are, because that'll be something worth paying attention to and drawing out so that you can get a sense of where it is things are heading. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I don't expect this to be universal, uh, but when you are trying to put together a theory or a prediction as to what's coming, try and think of, okay, what can I draw on to support that? What are the little snippets that I can say, okay, I think this was pointing a, an arrow at this, and that was the little arrow, and then this other thing was a big flashing arrow, and that's why I think it's going to happen in each chapter. Huh. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. All right. right. I'm going to have to, like, get sensitive to some of these things as I start reading. You'll, you'll get better at it as we go, too, is the other thing. You know, the first time it happened, I'm going to say, hey, remember that little line that I pointed out to you? And you're like, oh, that didn't matter. Like, that was talking about this. And you'll say, <laughs> oh, crap. All right. Uh, one of the other things that, that should be helpful in terms of uh, how you look at, at things and how you go about shaping this understanding of the world, uh, and this is a very classic fantasy trope that has not really been subverted here, but just the importance of songs and history and stories and all of these things. I mean, it is part of the world building. It's essential to all of this. And all of it means something for the present day story. Uh, that There are lessons to be learned from it, whether it's, you know, the morals of it or what about the interaction between characters in this story? How can I relate that? How is that an analog for what's going on now in front of me with the characters? And how can I learn from that? 
there's a lot of rhyming structure in that sense. So you'll hear a story about these two knights years ago who fought and clashed against each other. It's like, oh, that's kind of like the two knights now that are clashing against each other. I mean, I'm talking okay. big generalities here, but I find uh, I'm not really cool. Um, the one thing that is more of a pitfall, though, is that unlike, say, a Lord of the Rings, which I know you've read uh, at least many years ago, the stories and in particular the prophecy is not ironclad this is not set in stone it is very much so a human instrument and can get distorted by time and space and uh, games of telephone and all of those different things so it's how could there be a kernel of truth in this story as opposed to this story that they're telling now you know that the the bard is singing about to his lord Instead of saying that's literally what happened 300 years ago, it's what could this have grown out of in an organic way that kind of mm. resembles our storytelling, uh, you know, in the sense that we have however many different cultures that have a, a flood myth. Where could that have come from? Probably some catac cataclysmic environmental catastrophe around that time frame that may have, you know, that there, there's stuff you can pull out of it, but it's not going to be quite right. And does that kind of fall right into that idea of like bias from the character's perspective as well, right? Like nothing here is written exactly. as that sort of like this is the bottom line answer and source of truth as much as everything has been influenced by some perception, by time passing and things like that. Uh, I'm debating exactly. right now as, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm wondering is, is this going to make my personal reading experience of this better or worse as I go through this? As I'm like, oh God, just tell me what the story is. I'm tired of hearing contradictions, but but we'll see. We'll see as we get Well, there. you know what? That's something that we'll have to pay attention to. Because uh, hmm. if I'm making it worse, then that's certainly not my goal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, listening to your podcast really just ruined these books for me. Yeah. <laughs> I was having a great time when you gave all this explanation. No, no, no. And, and honestly, I, I, I even meant it more about the book style itself. I, I know a lot of the books that I read, yeah. you know, they... they while they do have characters that do present bias and things like that, the books are much more, uh, th th what grounds them is the fact that there is a story of quote unquote truth that they're conveying. And it'll be interesting. So there is, there's the story as it's happening in front of us. And that, you know, we, the things that we're seeing through the eyes of an eyewitness are real. Um, but you definitely need to question anything that's being reported to you. And so that is a central consideration for things like story and myth and legend and songs and anything like that, there is, you're not looking to it for accuracy. You're looking to it for what can I learn from this? And then just the last one I wanted to cover before we dove into the prologue, and this is intended as a segue because I think this is really what the prologue is doing and setting us up for, but that there is a conflict in this world between the magic and the science of it and the people of logic and the people of mysticism and how they view the world. And so uh, I'm going to talk more about this as we get into the chapter, but we get set down in a world where magic has not been at the forefront of people's minds. And it is more in the stories and myths and discussions of the past, with exceptions, it's not completely gone, but for the most part, this is not something that they're consciously thinking about anymore. And you know, this, I think, is the first example of that subversion of tropes idea is we get dropped into this and there is uh, this preconceived notion of coming to fantasy or sci-fi or anything in this type of world where you look at it and say, oh, well, obviously the, the 
mythological, the mystical explanation for things is the right thing. How stupid of these characters to not realize it. And I think you need to think about what if I were in this context, in our world today that has none of this. And then all of a sudden the magic jumped out at me from off frame. Like, would I have been stupid for putting myself in that position? It's like the, the, the yelling at the screen during a horror movie, like, oh, why is this idiot doing that? It's because they don't know they're in a horror movie. And if you act like you're in a horror movie when you're not, people around you are going to think you're insane and think you're an idiot. And so it's very easy to say, oh, don't go into the dark room. There's a monster in there. But for somebody who doesn't believe monsters are real, that takes on a very different tone. And so uh, I, I think that that tension there gets drawn out a lot. Very interesting to kind of even try to like, map that to some of the conversations happening even today just politically and things going on as you know nobody is is jumping up and down and saying here's the fundamental truth of you know god or magic or whatever it might be in our society but at the same time there's a lot of people jumping up and down saying i do have a fundamental truth to convey and here's my my sort of uh resume of what makes me a good truth seer uh and and lord knows that there's plenty of people pushing pushing in different directions. So it'll be interesting. I'm excited, just the way you're describing it and, and, and starting to go through it. So yeah, I, something, you know, I, I even wanted to say before we jump in, because you, you had mentioned this kind of as you were talking earlier, but it occurred to me that while I've seen a couple of the seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, I really have no idea which actions occurred in which books. Uh, and I think you even alluded to something like, oh, like this happened, but it happened to be, you know, between books two and three or something like that. And it's like, oh, wow, like, there's a chance I'm realizing that book one might be maybe the first half of the first season and things like that. So I'm excited to to, to figure that out as as we go forward. Um, but yeah, like like excited to to dive into the prologue. Uh, and I have I have my notes here in front of me as well. And the prologue, honestly, not terribly long by any means. Like there's not like a ton mm -hmm. uh, that I found to to dig into as much as I had a really fun time reading it. I actually wrote down in in my notes. I, I took a quote, and this is this is my title for the prologue: is a cold butchery. Uh, is is here we I are. Like that. Here we are. Uh, we find ourselves in the north with the nice Night's Watch, and specifically a small team from the Night's Watch who is out trying to find. You know, I I, I don't even remember how to refer to them, but you know these these uh, these these north north of the wall people who may have come into the you know over the wall to attack or raid raiders. I think is is what they refer to them as. Yeah, wildlings. Is Wild the general things. population, and this is like a group of raiders. Yeah. Exactly. And so we have a few people here. We have uh, uh, Garrett, Sir Waymer Royce, and Will as this three, this team of three going out to try to find this. And and as I'm reading through and quickly from the beginning, we find that they're here, they're north of the wall, they're in the cold, but that the more experienced yet lesser qualified ones, the ones of lower rank, uh, Garrett and Will, are realizing that there's something off right now. Uh, it's a little too cold for the season. Things aren't what they should be. Uh, while Sir Sir Waymer Royce, uh, who seems to be new to the to the Night's Watch, uh, is saying, "No, no, no! You guys are just being kind of weak about this. Why don't you come on in?" So they find themselves here, and as they're looking, and there's plenty of backs and forths, and and a lot of unsubtle uh, feelings and emotions about just how dangerous this situation is, uh, and and having that be just totally, totally ignored. Uh, from from this this Sir Sir Wayman Royce. Yeah, you're exactly right about the unsubtle feelings. But I want to I want to start by talking just about the ambiance and the mood of things here. 
it starts out so immediately with this sense of foreboding. Uh, opening line, we should start back. They have this conversation, do the dead frighten you, all of this. And it almost, the first location we get for them uh, about where they are before we even get a reference to the Night's Watch or to the wall is uh, Garrett or Jared, I have no idea how to say it, uh, says that when they turn around and go back, they have an eight or nine day ride ahead of them. So they are in the middle of nowhere, completely away from their post, at risk, in danger, just out on their own, just the three of them. Oh, yeah, yeah. So definitely, obviously, like that, that remoteness that they're, they're facing, uh, it, it, they don't seem uh, outside of their abilities, which I think also stresses the danger that the two more experienced ones are feeling. This, it, it's not that it, you know, because we're so far out, it's going to be hard to come back. It's, there's a problem, it's time for us to consider heading back, which, which I really like. Yeah, definitely highlighted a few lines just just across this that uh, that that stood out to me. Like until tonight, some, something something was different tonight. Uh, you know, all day Will had felt as though something were watching him. There's just constant allusions to this. And then I also thought it was interesting because at the same time that you have this uh, this sense of foreboding of something what I'll refer to as extraterrestrial, something outside of that, that, you know, normal experience. Yeah. There's also a balance back and forth a little bit with the writing uh, about the literal and the human uh, here, mostly from Sir Royce's, uh, you know, about and, and, and focusing on Sir Royce. I, there's a whole list of what he's wearing, uh, you know, of his, his cloak, the, the, the chain mail that he has on, it's all in black, it's very rich, it's very authentic. And in fact, I, I also highlighted a line that I really liked a lot, which is, uh, it's hard to take orders from a man you laughed at in your cups. Like, so, uh, yeah. you know, Will, I think, was talking about this. There had been some jokes about Sir Royce and his sort of pompacity, uh, you know, but, but that, you know, right, there, there is already showing, just even in the writing style, a balance between this extra sense, this whatever that, that outside the norm thing might be, as well as just the human nature part here. What does it mean to have a ranking officer who's younger than you, who's less experienced, who's, you know, too bravado for his own good? And the story goes on to, to, to show us what, what happens. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, so, so let's, yeah, let's take it one step at a time. So, uh, so like, what, what are they talking about here when we get to them? What's, what's the setting? What prompted this conversation? And then what are they debating? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as uh, right now they, they're like you had said, eight or nine days out from camp, from its from the from the wall, basically pursuing these raiders, these wildlings, and they're stopping because they have come across the camp of these wildlings, but something is is off and and incorrect about it per their scout wills uh, report. And the back and forth is really, and again, something that stood out to me was, you know, there there is this this conversation and voice of experience between Will and uh, Gerard or Gerard uh, versus versus Royce, and yet at the same time they are honor bound to really follow their leader to where it's going. Uh, they yeah. out here in the cold. They he the the Royce continues to say, "Let's push on and show me where you found these people." And uh, sure enough, Will takes him to go find them. There is an ominous conversation. Where no, before says, we get to that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's just slow down a little bit. So first off, you, you've been dancing around, I think, the core topic here. It's not that there's something off with the camp, it's that the wildlings are all dead, and they don't know why. Uh, and so I, I find this really interesting, because there are two competing 
themes going on here that really pull you in very different directions with Sir Waymore Woods. The first one, which I think is what you're picking up on, and I, I think is exactly right, and, and frankly, what you're supposed to feel, this is a young kid. He comes from money. He is the youngest son of a house with too many heirs, and he gets sent to the wall because of that. It details his clothes. He's got super nice stuff. He's got all of these rich things, and he's dealing with two people who came from a peasant background uh, who do not have access to the same things, but do have more experience than him. Will has some more experience, uh, but clearly has these very applicable skills coming from his time as a poacher, uh, where he works exceptionally well as a scout. Garrett, uh, we don't hear anything particular about him and who he is and what he's good at, but he has been a nice watchman for decades now and has infinitely more experience. And Sir Waymore is ignoring them and asserting his authority because he comes from money. He has that background. He's able to do so. And that class conflict there, that classic, you know, idiot commander getting the more experienced privates killed and getting them into trouble. That's such a classic storyline, such a classic tale. And it's so easy to take Will's side and be from his perspective in terms of laughing at Sir Waymore Royce. The flip side of things that's interesting here, though, is Sir Waymore is, Mar is probably right. He's not listening to the instinct that these two men are having that is informed by their years of experience, and he should be. He should be taking that more seriously than he is. He shouldn't be making poking fun at them. But at the same time, they go back, and Will and, and Garrett go back to drinking with their friends, and he has to go report to the commander. And the commander says, okay, did you track them? He said, yeah, we did. And Will said they were dead. Okay, what killed them? Will didn't know. Did you see them dead? No, I didn't. I didn't go look. We turned around and came back. Why'd you come back? It was cold. I was scared. That's not something he can say on his first one. He can't come back to the military barracks and express that. Of course he's right. He has to finish the mission. This isn't just hubris. And, you know, we'll get there in a moment. But in terms of what happens at the end, like, how is he supposed to expect that any of this is? So there are just all of these lines throughout this chapter that I pulled out that I think are really great. You have to think about from a third party perspective after this is all done, they ride back and everybody's warm and all of the feeling, feelings of it are gone. You know, what is it he's gonna say? What the other guys said, you know, Garrett at one point tells him, uh, listen to the darkness. That's not something you can tell the commander. He says later on, Garrett also says, and again, it, it's, it is literally correct. Garrett says we should build a fire and he says, why would we build a fire? And he says, I don't know. It'll scare off the bears and direwolves and other things. Like he is, the two older guys are dancing at shadows. They're afraid of what might be out there. There's something in the air that feels off. And they're right. And those are senses that, that tingling, that experience is something that you should listen to. And that if Waymar Royce had listened to, maybe he'd survive the end of this chapter that we're about to get to. But he's not stupid. He's just kind of a dick. <laughs> uh yeah i like that it's so it's funny too and, and i know you had been talking earlier about you know the perspective and bias it's hard to read through this uh this prologue and and not immediately side with the the wary experienced soldiers uh you know and, and say like wait a second like and i think you you make a lot of the good points right there there is and especially to a point that you had made before right this is not a world in its current state of magic all the time and here's you know the craziness happening in a sense this could be the beginning or of a recurrence this could be but it, uh, beginnings are often you know just because it's beginning today doesn't mean people weren't finding ways out of work about it last week 
and you know the week before and that oh right you know why we decided to come back well it was really freaking cold but uh we're going to tell you know our commanders it's because you know the ghosts in the forest came out with with knives i will add though it's a lot easier to feel good about my decision to side with the bias of these two more experienced men as we get towards the end of this prologue and sure enough uh you know the bodies that they had seen before have now disappeared they've clearly been removed and then sure enough uh will has scurried up a tree to as a lookout and royce becomes more and more fearful of what is an approaching doom uh and and here we have in front of us i don't i think they're actually referred to as the others that's the only uh title of them but he becomes surrounded by clearly a uh a a fantastical uh warrior if you will with pale frozen eyes and a very extreme type of sword and they battle and it is a very one-sided battle and Royce finds himself totally beaten uh by the end of it and then uh and even still we have we have Will saying that he you know he waited for a long time and thought that he finished only to come down and try to take out some proof as you had even said right like what you can't just go back and say you were afraid of the cold in the dark and he grabs the shattered longsword from Royce and begins to you know prepare himself to start trying to to find Gerard and and to to, to move back to camp only for this strange necromancy to happen and Royce kind of stands up and and murders this young boy and and clear, clearly there is a the beginnings of something bad I don't know how else to say it like this was not an expected trial that I think all, any of the three of them expected to go through this is not the enemy that I think they expected to have to face and it is now a very clear and present uh threat not only to the night's watch but to start as the, the prologue with this I'm now saying wow this is probably the threat this is now like this sort of larger existential threat to this world that we're about to go and experience yeah i think that's exactly right i i want to push back at least from my perspective against uh, uh your characterization of waymore royce here again i i feel like i'm standing up for him a lot which is not exactly the position i want to be in because he's clearly not a good guy but i i think that the contrast between the waymore royce we meet in the first half which is the green boy, the inexperienced, uh, overconfident, cocky asshole who, you know, Jared says a story about uh, of, about his waking up and his brother had frozen to death next to him. And he said, oh, you should dress more warmly then while he stands there in his beautiful, expensive coat. But then he gets to the end and stands up against these otherworldly beings. And this is, I think, the the difference between the expectation and the finish he stands up for himself and he is able to fight relatively successfully for a while i mean it's uh, he's surrounded by them but he's only fighting one so obviously he probably wouldn't have lasted otherwise but the the blow by blow of him reaching out and meeting the sword or even before they they start changing blows he sir waymar met him bravely dance with me then he stands up and clearly afraid, he knocks away the blows and lasts for a little while before he loses and before he gets taken down. So this isn't the person we first thought it would be. This isn't the incompetent. Uh, there's the moment earlier in the chapter, which I can't help but think is uh, a biased by our point of view from Will, where Garrett looks like he might reach for his sword. And Will thinks if he does, then this, little officer asshole is going to get his his ass beat, which he might. Uh, but 
you really have to think that this is a guy who later on in his chapter stands up to the others, like capital O others, these metaphysical beings that we know nothing about, except that they seem to be the embodiment of winter and the embodiment of cold. Who knows how that would have gone? Maybe he would have won that fight against Garrett. And how much are we reading into the grizzled old experienced vet idea to assume that this would end poorly if he decided to push back? Uh, and how much of that is rooted in the same class considerations we were talking about at the beginning? This is a guy who has all the nicest things and grew up learning how to fight and all of this. And he's with somebody who's there because he got caught hunting a deer, except it was the Lord's deer. So now it's poaching and he has to get his hand cut off or else go to the wall. You know, those are real concrete advantages. You don't have the plucky little peasant who happens to be the best swordsman in the world. It's going to be the people who are trained by the best, who are most likely going to end up being the best. And this, mm. uh, myth of, of meritocracy and of experience is kind of being undermined by the way that this is being presented at the beginning. I suppose, but I will also say, and it's funny because I, I was thinking about this when I was reading, I just recently read uh, a, a retelling of King Arthur tales that John Steinbeck wrote. And uh, and something that shows up a lot in, in that, you know, these sort of Arthurian tales is the sense of, uh, I don't know what the opposite of meritocracy would be, is, is, is you got born into the cast, and no matter what you say, it must be right because you are a knight, not you merit into being a knight. And in fact, those kind of stand out. One of the things that I even highlighted while while reading this prologue, uh, it was a conversation as as the two, as Will and Gerard kind of are saying, hey, we really should move away. And Royce turns around and says, uh, you know, uh, like basically, Will, like we're done, like lead us there. I want to see these dead men for myself. And, and the following line is, uh, and, th and then there was nothing to be done for it. The order had been given and honor bound them to obey. And, and this is something that I personally always balk at, both in my reading life and just in general, which is, you know, th there's not a, this is not a dialogue. This is, nor is it a democracy. Because somebody holds a position of honor, therefore they have to do this. You know, those under them have to do this. You know, one of my least favorite experiences, more more watching movies than than reading books, but is is that moment where you're like, you know, screaming at the screen and you're like, don't go in there. We all know that you shouldn't go in there. Like the writing is on the wall not to go in there. And then you have you have this one character who's saying, no, 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 I'm going to ignore the situation around me and force others to their doom. And so, you know, here uh, I'm already kind of like grinding my teeth a little bit at this Royce character and what I assume is to be many, many more like him. Uh, whether on the Night's Watch or in, in many other like like positions where truth will never play up against uh, ranking, you know, rank. I think it, 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 in a weird way, it reminds me a lot of famous Dostoevsky has uh, the Grand Inquisitor scene where Jesus comes down from heaven and has a conversation with a high ranking priest. And the priest is basically like, we don't really don't need you here anymore. We have our hierarchy of those that like define what needs to be good. And, and it's like, wait, but don't, don't, aren't you missing the point there? Like, like, shouldn't this be the biggest call is when your, your soldiers underneath you turn to you and say like, hey, we all have a bad feeling here. And it's clearly not, and it never is, but I'm just like, right. oh, all right. Like, so, so now what? Yeah, and I, 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 I can say, no, don't worry, we're gonna go to full, full, you know, DEFCON five or one, whichever one's the highest one. Uh, and say, let's go face this. Like, I'm sure that's what the next chapter is, is the right. Night's Watch going to arms and taking this as a real serious threat. All right, we'll get to that in a moment, for sure. Uh, I, I just want to clarify that 
with the meritocracy point, I wasn't saying that this means that Sir Royce is better, but rather that we have this assumption that, you know, the plucky little guy in stories is going to be able to stand up, that it's, you know, it's the, the true knight, the one who comes from the people and wins it based on their skill and their mm. talent. And that, you know, those types of things don't necessarily shine through that we have this guy who was given this position because of where he was born and because of the money his family has and the connections, the political connections that he might have. And sometimes, a lot of times, maybe even most of the times, the fact of that money and power and upbringing also makes him stronger, the better right. swordsman, right. all of these other things. And that, that is another way in which it is compounding upon itself. But to pick up on the last thing that you were talking about, which I think is, is exactly right, and maybe not even maybe, but one of the ways, the core way that these more experienced Night's Watchmen are setting themselves head and shoulders above Sir Royce in, in just the simple fact that they would not have gotten uh, them killed if they had been listening to them throughout this, when they're talking about the feeling that they have and the vibes that they're getting from the forest surrounding them that's creeping them out, they keep putting this in the mouth of ancient knowledge. There are the old sayings, dead men tell no tales, Will remembers the old stories that he was told. And these get written off as, you know, things for children. Royce says at one point, you know, don't don't ever trust something you learned at a woman's teeth, which is uh, a fun little sexual riff of, you know, I'm, I'm going to lie when I'm sleeping with somebody, but also a reference to childhood and to the upbringing and to these myths and legends uh, that, uh, that they're really drawing on. And Will has an entire story about on his first ranging but all of the things that he had heard about what lurked past the wall and above there and how that terrified him at first. And now in this moment, he's four years in and he's out on his hundredth ranging and, and those thoughts are what's coming back to him. And it's that sort of instinctual, deep-seated knowledge that none of them can even put into words that it is what they're picking up on there. Uh, and, you know, so from that perspective, what of that old knowledge are we getting here from these characters? What are What's the the instinct that they're saying here that might actually have some connection to something that was learned in the past, maybe in other experiences with the others, with, with these things that they might need to learn from. Uh, and, and so that's another way to draw our attention to that metaphysical side of things, as opposed to the concrete and what's necessarily in front of them. Well, overall, and I'll, I'll say, you know, I think the most defeating part of the prologue for me and, and I, I say there's no negativity, like as, as a as a fanboy reader, uh, the worst part is, is that my assumption is no one, dead men tell no tales, like nobody is there to go back to the Night's Watch. You know, I know that we only actually see two of the three of this, this scouting party uh, die, so perhaps. I am so glad you're saying this, because yeah. this was what I had written down for you to predict that I wanted to hear your thoughts on was, uh, what happened to, to Garrett? Where is he right now? Yeah, so it, it's, it, you know, because I was, I was thinking about this a lot because obviously there are two very clear and explicit deaths. Royce, Will, both dead. Dead being a larger term for Royce since he is since reanimated. Uh, well, do you, do you think Will is also going to get reanimated or not? I... From a from a like a reader perspective, not not like a like enjoying the words, but just thinking about the way books work, maybe. But I can't imagine it's going to play any big plot role because Will, I think, is just a tiny yeah. throwaway character. Like unless the next time I see the Night's Watch and they're like, "Where's Will, that great scout?" Because he's actually yeah. related to the king. Uh, like right. that. 
but I, I can't see him playing a much a much bigger role here at all. I do wonder about the character of Gerard. I, I'm going to try to pick a, a way to say his name and stick to it, but until then, I'm just going to jump around. But I was curious if perhaps he's the type of character when when Royce turned around and said, "Don't make a fire," uh, his instinct was to get away, was to basically be like, mm-hmm. "These guys are gone. Like, like I'm I'm cutting cutting ties now, and, and I'm I'm going to start moving away." Um, but other than that, like like I could see it going either direction. Uh, I could see all three of these characters being throwaway prologue characters, right? Welcome reader, welcome to this conceit that we now need to kind of face and keep in mind. There is something going on. There is something mystical. Uh, I could see one of these characters uh, being like a very main character throughout the Night's Watch experience. So Gerard, Gerard in this case or whatever, you know, coming back and being somebody who perhaps is ostracized for being just crazy. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. he saw this or or he's the weak one who decided to try to escape from a situation like who left his comrades behind. Um, but I I don't know. I also have no idea when to expect to come back to the Night's Watch because I do know that these chapters right. have changed a lot. So I, I'm trying not to highlight names as I'm going through so that when I do get there, I can come back and be like, who the heck did we talk about? Yeah. That? Well, that's also part of my role. You know, don't don't knock me out of a yeah. job here. That's true. You're right. <laughs> so uh, so I, I do want to pigeonhole you here or pin you down and, and get an answer is garrett alive i'm gonna say no i'm gonna say there's no way that these others left left garrett alive i think these were just uh th- this this was a a scene to set a situation much more than to develop okay. characters or, or bring us bring us to characters so so in direct connection with this you said earlier you know next chapter night's watch is marching out to fight them are you revising that you think the Night's Watch isn't even going to find out what happened. Yeah, and I, I think, I think I, the way I was saying that, I meant a little more tongue-in-cheek than maybe it came out. Okay. I can see a lot of the situations around the Night Watch being a conflict between those who are starting to experience what might be some odd and mystical things and those of higher ranking and prestige who are saying, there's no way, we have a job, and that job is to continue right. to go out uh, and, and do this, even though people are dying at a higher rate or things like that. Um, I can only imagine that if if the next chapter of the Night's Watch was everyone to arms, this would be a very yeah. different style book than than what Much I understand. shorter series. Yeah, just from the, uh, the even my short experience on the TV show. Yeah, all right, that all makes sense. So one last uh, point, I'm, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where to do these things and how we're going to structure these episodes, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of world building with uh, respect to a couple of things that were mentioned here and give you some background on it. Uh, the first couple of things go together. The Night's Watch, which is what these three men are members of, is an institution that effectively predates the kingdom that we're going to be spending this series talking about. Uh, their job is to man the wall. The wall is this absolutely enormous structure uh, at the north. Um, and from the perspective that the uh, Westeros, the kingdom in question, kind of looks, if you squint, like a map of the British Isles. Uh, this is like the Hadrian's Wall uh, counter t- counterpart, and uh, and this is, you know, at the top, this is the northern border of the kingdom, and it marks the difference between the people who live in the kingdoms and the wildlings who live beyond the wall. And the wall is this giant structure primarily made of ice. So you get a reference in there at one point uh, when Waymar Royce is talking about why the uh, people might have died and Garrett or Will say that it's 
that they froze to death, he points out that the wall was weeping recently, which means that it's been warm enough that, that the ice is sweating. Um, and so that really gives you a sense of scale on the wall in addition to the rest of this, where the, um, the wall is so big that over the course of the millennia that it's existed, it will have these periods of melting and refreeze and be able to stand on its own. Um, I will say we're going to get this in a little while. This isn't a spoiler on anything, but the actual size of the wall, as it's described, nonsensical. Uh, some people like to try and come up with in-universe explanations for that. My general assumption is just that George R. R. Martin doesn't really know distances and numbers. Uh, so feel free to picture it however you want, like the biggest wall you've ever seen. But you're going to get like a, a number of feet or something and be like, no, nah, I can't be right. Uh, <laughs> And so, so now you'll notice that when it happens. I'm going to start paying attention um, to more distances and like like uh, measurements now throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so I I have a, I'm not of the the style where everything has an in world explanation. Authors are human. I'm perfectly comfortable in fantasy series chalking some things up to an error or uh, uh, something that they decided to change or regretted later, and I think that's totally fine. A lot of that in this series is numerical. The biggest thing, which you're going to get right at the start of this next chapter, is, is the children's ages are just way too young, and they fixed that for the show. Uh, and mm -hmm. so for me, I just have my own canonical interpretation of these types of things where I'm just going to ignore what it is <laughs> said in the books on this. Gotcha. So that's fair warning there. Okay. Uh, the last piece uh, of world building um, is that there's a mention at one point, Garrett says uh, that the last winter he saw how cold it got and then the one before that when he was hardly a boy. And so this part is, is very crucial to themes throughout this story, but the seasons are, are not standard here. And the years, um, I actually don't even know if they have a measurement of a year, but they certainly don't follow our uh, solar system where everything follows the same pattern. 12 months, it'll be cold for part and warm for part or whatever it is. This is a totally mystical concept. Summers can last for decades. Winters can last for decades. And so uh, you, you take the good times while they last, but you have to prepare for the bad times because there's no way of knowing that the winter will only last four months. And that, that's all you have to save up the harvests for. And so I wanted to point that out as well. One last thing I wanted to mention, the, the word choice and imagery choice surrounding everything to do with the others, which is, it goes through every theme of this chapter that we've talked about. This sense of foreboding that starts at the beginning is all about the cold. And Garrett has that really, I mean, even Raymar Royce calls it mockingly eloquent, but it really is the best imagery that this entire chapter gets. It, it's so beautiful and so dark about the cold and the threat of the cold. The real danger is the cold and it gets inside you and makes you listen to it. And then the others show up at the end of this chapter and everything about them is ice cold. Their laughter sounds like the breaking of ice. They're uh, sharp like icicles. Everything is, is surrounded by this imagery, blue, gray, ice, wind, cold, silence. And it's such a cool horror approach. It's so visual in terms of how it's negotiated. And then towards the end of the chapter, we just have this great moment where Waymar Royce gets stabbed. He finally misses one of his parries and gets hit under the armpit. And it is a bright bloom of red. And that's the first color we've gotten. That's not these cool blue. And so it's that human versus the other, the others 
contrast between this vibrant technicolor world and, you know, that sort of blue, white, winter in a forest at nighttime theme that the others have to them. Uh, and so I wanted to draw attention to that as well, because that in conjunction with the seasons, like we were talking about, uh, I, I think is a direct theme for that. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to more. I'm, I'm really excited if yeah. uh, Prologue is any telling. Did you have any other thoughts? No, that's really, uh, that was really it for me. I really loved, like, like I said at the beginning, it was a cold butchery. Uh, and, yeah. and that's really exactly what I think this scene was. And I'm excited. I can only imagine the many, or, or I can very much imagine the, the very different directions that this could possibly go. And I'm excited and interested yeah. to see which one it chooses. Yeah. Well, that's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing Bran 1, Catelyn 1, and Daenerys 1. If you are, enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And thanks, as always, for listening.